When we stopped last week, Moses and Aaron had just arrived in Egypt, and they told the elders and the people about Yahweh and his intention to free them from slavery. They'd shown them all the signs that it was God speaking, turning the staff into a snake and back, making Moses' hand diseased, remember, and then healing again, and turning water into blood. Now remember that these slaves have been living 400 years in a land of polytheism. They are not a nation. They are just an ethnic group. They probably worship many different Egyptian and Canaanite gods. But when they see the signs Moses and Aaron show them, they are like in awe and agree that Yahweh is real and is showing up to save them. So they're, they're glad to follow such a God, but it doesn't make them monotheists. That work is still ahead, but it does explain why each sign and plague specifically challenges one or more of the Egyptian gods. Next up is Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron do not approach Pharaoh in fear or submission. They march right in and say, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, demands. Let my people go so they may make a pilgrimage to me in the desert. That word for pilgrimage, the very first thing God calls his people to do, is really cool. It means to celebrate to have a festival, to have a parade, to dance, specifically in a circle, a communal, a communal kind of dance. This is the kind of worship God asks for from these who are enslaved and oppressed and carry heavy burdens. God is inviting them first and foremost to dance and laugh and sing and rejoice. This is who God is. This is what worship is. God also asks for sacrifices, which to our modern mind conjures up all sorts of visions of anger and appeasement and blood. But to understand the tone, we need to think gifts to God whenever we hear the word sacrifices. There will be some atonement sort of sacrifices later, and we'll use appropriate wording then. But most often, God is talking about gifts given in joyful thanksgiving. Right now, though, remember that Pharaoh would not understand language of joyful gift-giving with respect to a god. He's only going to conceive of a god who needs to be appeased, and that's the language Moses and Aaron use with him. Pharaoh says, who is this god that I should obey him? No, I will not. And Moses and Aaron say, well, this God accidentally happened upon us. He, he encountered us. And now we must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to him. Or he may fall upon us with plagues or sword. And Pharaoh says, what do you think you're doing trying to take the people from their work? Get out of here. Get back to work. And that very same day, Pharaoh orders his slave drivers to stop giving the Hebrews straw for making bricks. The problem is that straw is only gathered in a particular season in Egypt. It can be very hard to find out of season, not to mention the sheer time and backbreaking work it takes to gather it. Straw is a binder that strengthens the bricks. Without it, the bricks crumble up after they dry. You can't really put weight on them. I put a link in the study guide to a really great article showing actually some people who went and learned this ancient brick-making process and tried doing it with and without straw to see what would happen. Of course, Pharaoh does not reduce the required daily quota of sturdy bricks, and of course, the slaves cannot meet their quotas. The Egyptian slave drivers beat the Hebrew foreman for missing the quotas, and the foreman appealed to Pharaoh, saying, it's the slave driver's fault. They don't give us the straw we need to make the quotas. And Pharaoh yells, lazy, that's what you, that's why you keep saying, let's go sacrifice to Yahweh. Get back to work. You will not be given straw and your quotas will not be reduced. Now, Moses and Aaron are hovering outside Pharaoh's court. And when the Hebrew foremen come out, they yell at Moses and Aaron, shame on you. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his advisors. You've given them an excuse to kill us. 
Moses, of course, is horrified. He goes back to the Lord and says, why, Lord, what? why have you let this happen? I've done everything you said to do, but it's all backfired and things are worse than ever. You have not rescued your people. And God answers Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. By a mighty hand, he will send the people away. And by a mighty hand, he will drive them out. I personally don't understand why the foreman had to be beaten or why this extra hardship had to happen. I guess it shows God's forbearance towards Pharaoh, giving him every chance to do what is right. Then God says, I am Yahweh. Circle that in your Bible. It's in Exodus 6, 2. When God says, I am Yahweh, it means he's about to tell you something really important. Sometimes, like this time, he repeats the phrase again at the end of the passage, effectively bracketing it and highlighting its importance even more. Circle it again in Exodus 6, 8. A passage like this will always reveal something about God or about who we are called to be in relationship with God and each other. Knowing the significance of this phrase is a new tool in your backpack. So what important thing does God say here? I am Yahweh. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me as El Shaddai, the God of blessing and provision and fruitfulness. They did not know me in the way you are going to know me now as Yahweh. I made a promise to them, and I remember my promise. So say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. There it is again, circle it. I will free you. I will stretch out my arms and redeem you. I will buy you back with mighty acts of judgment. I will marry you as my people. That's literally what the Hebrew means here. I will marry you and I will be yours. And you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I promised. I will give it to you. I am Yahweh. Circle all those times he says, I am Yahweh. It'll, it'll say, I am the Lord in your Bible, most likely, since the Lord is how they um, translate Yahweh. This is God's introduction of himself. This is the first thing he wants his people to know. We would do well to remember these points that he's emphasized so dramatically. They are fundamental to who God is and how he sees our relationship. What an introduction to God. What great, great love. Moses tells this great news to the Israelites, but they cannot see past the beatings, the discouragement, and the terrible labor. They don't believe him. Nevertheless, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him again to let the Israelites leave Egypt. But Moses says, Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. Even the Israelites won't listen to me. At this point, the genealogy of Moses is stuck in the middle of the story. It might seem to be a strange place for it, but if you think about where genealogies have been placed so far, you'll realize they're at major transitions. They're usually at the beginning or the end of a story or at a place where a particular character is exiting the story. In this case, the genealogy marks where Moses and Aaron are entering the story as leaders of the Israelites, and it shows how they fit into the 12 tribes of Israel. Recognizing the significance of the placement of a genealogy in the story is another tool in your backpack. This genealogy gives us details about Moses' family and ancestry, but I want to point something out to you. If you look back to the genealogy in Genesis 46, the one that lists all the families that immigrated to Egypt in the time of Joseph, it says in verse 11 that at the time, Levi and his three sons immigrated. One of those sons was Kohath. Now flip back to Exodus 6, 16. 
it names Levi as the head of the tribe and names those same three sons. Okay, go down to verse 18. It says Kohath had four sons, one of whom was Amram, Moses and Aaron's father. Now think about this. Where did the 430 years of slavery go? Even if you start counting the 430 from when Joseph arrived in Egypt, Joseph had only been there 22 years, so we've got to account for about 400 years in between Kohath and Moses. You can't do it. The numbers won't work. You cannot hang your hat on these dates or these lifespans or even these genealogies. And don't believe anyone who says they've nailed down the dates and time spans in the Hebrew Bible. You know better than that now. Even me naming Thutmose I as the Pharaoh of the Exodus, who knows if that's who it was? That's an educated guess at best. We have no real way of knowing. Trying to defend the Bible as literally accurate in all respects is not only impossible, but it will cause you to waste effort on argument and mental gymnastics that will divert you from the whole point of Scripture. Scripture does not have to be literally accurate in all details to still be true in the deepest sense, to still be inspired and well worth studying. The dates are not the point. The physical specifics are not the point. Not even the names and the generations are the point. The story is the point. What it is telling us about God and his people, that is the point. Never get sidetracked from this. And while we're on the topic, you'll see folks doing all kinds of gymnastics to try to explain the 10 plagues as natural phenomena. Even my NIV study Bible, which I love so much, falls into this very trap. This is completely counter to the whole point of the story of the 10 plagues. If the 10 plagues were natural phenomena, then where is God in the story? What would the point of the story even be? You would completely miss that it's a power struggle between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. So many scholars and pastors do not believe in miracles. I have taken great care to show you how to view scripture with an educated and intelligent eye, but I want to take equal care to protect the author's message in the story. And the point here in Exodus is that God can and does show up with might and power and great miracles to rescue his people. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Don't lose your faith in who God really is. If your God cannot do miracles, then he's not much of a God, is he? After the genealogy, there's a little recap of the story so far, and the story picks back up in chapter 7, verse 10. At this point, Moses and Aaron are back in Pharaoh's presence, and Pharaoh demands a sign from this so-called God, Yahweh. Moses and Aaron are prepared. Aaron throws his staff down in front of Pharaoh. You can't tell from the grammar whether it's Aaron's staff or Moses' staff. And Aaron's staff becomes just as big a deal as Moses' staff in the rest of the story. From here on out, you'll see both staffs in action. Well, you'd think it would turn into a snake like Moses' staff did. But the Hebrew is a different word here entirely. It turns into a large sea animal, a word that can mean whale or dragon or monster or serpent. I'm thinking in this context, it must have turned into a crocodile. But we'll go with snake just to keep things simple. And Pharaoh calls upon his wise men and those who whisper spells, and they all throw down their staffs and turn them into snakes. But Aaron's staff eats up all their snakes. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses to let the people go. So God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh as he goes down to the Nile the next morning and confront him again. 
This time, God says he will strike the waters of the Nile and turn them to blood, along with all the canals and ponds and reservoirs. And that's exactly what happens. But the Egyptian magicians are able to turn vessels of water into blood too. So Pharaoh is not impressed, even though all the fish in the Nile die and the whole country stinks. Apparently, this plague didn't last long, or all of Egypt would have perished. Next come the frogs. Frogs in their beds, frogs in their houses, frogs in their cooking bowls, frogs everywhere. And the magicians are able to do the same. Seems to me like they'd try to get rid of the frogs instead, but no, I don't think they can. All they can do is make more frogs. Notice in the story that God always specifically warns Pharaoh exactly what will happen if he does not let God's people go. None of this is ever a surprise. God is not capricious or mean. Even with the lives of the Hebrews at stake, God is never underhanded or unfair with Pharaoh. He gives Pharaoh very clear choices. Remember this when bad things happen and you wonder if God is punishing you. If you have to wonder, then rest assured, whatever the bad thing is, it's not punishment from God. That's not how God works. And God doesn't punish you for things you can't help. That's not how God works either. I think the frog plague must have lasted a while because Pharaoh wears down. He finally calls Moses and Aaron back and tells them if they'll get their God to relent, then he'll let the people go off our sacrifices. So Moses says, okay, you pick the time you want the frogs to go. That way you'll know it's by God's hand. And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And sure enough, the next day, all the frogs drop dead. The Egyptians have to pile them in heaps, and the whole country stinks again. But as soon as he gets relief, Pharaoh hardens his heart against the Lord again. This time, the Lord tells Aaron to hit the ground with his staff, and all the land of Egypt is covered with gnats. At this point, God leaves the magicians in the dust, literally. They can't copy this, so they capitulate and tell Pharaoh this really must be Elohim. Pharaoh doesn't want to hear that, and he hardens his heart again. The next plague is swarms, just swarms. It doesn't say of what. Your Bible may say flies, but it could also be translated as mosquitoes, and having endured both, I have to say, mosquitoes are a lot worse than flies. I definitely go with mosquitoes for the win. But we'll say flies, since that's what most Bibles will say. Thankfully, God says there won't be any, any flies in Goshen where the Israelites are. God tells Pharaoh, I am making a division between my people and your people. This word for division actually means ransom or redemption. It got changed to division when the Greeks translated the Bible. God in the Hebrew says he will redeem his people, that there is a redemption between the Egyptians and the Israelites. God is at work here. He's ransoming them. He's buying them back. He's setting them apart. He's placing a barrier of protection between them and the powers of Egypt that want to destroy them. He's protecting them from the plagues the Egyptians have brought on the country. As a Christian, I can't help but think of Jesus and his role as redeemer of God's people. Was Jesus here in Egypt? Fed up with the flies, Pharaoh relents and tells Moses and Aaron the Israelites can have the day off to do sacrifices, but they have to stay in Egypt to do them. Moses refuses, saying that the sacrifices would be detestable to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians would rise up and stone them. No, the only way is to go a three-day journey into the wilderness. Pharaoh sees his point, but warns them not to go very far. So Moses prays, the flies leave, and you know what happens. Pharaoh's heart is still just as hard as ever, and he refuses to let the people go. Up to now, none of the four plagues have been life-threatening, at least in the short term. 
They've all been extreme inconveniences, super annoying. They've made life miserable, but they've generally been benign. And Pharaoh is not budging. So now the Lord ups the ante. Now the plagues are going to start having serious, irreversible impacts on animals and on people and on the economy. The next plague is a severe disease on the cattle, horses, donkeys, camels, and herds. Not good. But again, the plague does not touch the Israelites. It says their livestock was set apart by God so that none died. And Pharaoh knows this because he sent someone to check, and that makes him really mad. So even though the domesticated animals of Egypt are dying by the thousands, he refuses to let God's people go. Then the Lord tells Moses to throw soot up in the air in front of Pharaoh, and the soot settles to become painful boils on the remaining animals and on the people of Egypt. The boils are so bad that Pharaoh's magicians can't stand before him, which is kind of humorous. But even still, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. I wonder if the boils affected him personally. It doesn't say. Now the Lord warns Pharaoh that up to this point he's been holding back. But now if Pharaoh does not let the people go, Yahweh will come upon Egypt in all his great power. God tells Pharaoh he could have easily already wiped Egypt from the face of the earth, but he's restrained his hand, giving Pharaoh every chance to relent. Then God says something interesting. He says, I have allowed you to remain standing so I can show you my power, so that my name, my reputation, will be recounted throughout all the earth. Remember last week when I showed you the single letter Vav that was interpreted so? Well, we've got two more so's here, and they're different words entirely. The first one means in order to. The second one is la ma'an, and it has additional implications. It means that the consequences are a direct result of what happened before, even if the consequences were unintended. Here's an example. It's from Hosea 8, verse 4. With their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be destroyed. The word that is lemaon. Now, clearly, the people did not intend to destroy themselves by making idols. Their destruction was an unintended consequence. This is a great example of how translating the word as so or that can make the whole sentence really confusing. It would be better translated as consequently. With their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves and consequently left themselves open to destruction. See what a difference that word makes? We need to do the same here in Exodus 9.16. God says, I have allowed you to remain standing in order to show you my power. Consequently, my name, my reputation will be recounted throughout all the earth. God let Pharaoh stand so Pharaoh would have a chance to understand God's power and to give Pharaoh a chance to humble himself and recognize God as God. But Pharaoh wouldn't do it. Consequently, God's reputation spread through all the earth. This is the merciful God we know. What a difference a careful reading and thoughtful translation can make. I almost feel sorry for Pharaoh. He's so willful and so stubborn. It's hard to watch someone bullheadedly march themselves and their people straight to destruction when it could so easily be avoided. All Pharaoh has to do is humble himself enough to let God's people go. But Pharaoh's not going to humble himself, is he? The next plague is hail such as Egypt had never seen before. God warns them even giving them a time when it will strike. And there are Egyptians who do believe God will do what he says, and they hasten to bring their people and their remaining livestock inside. But there are other Egyptians who refuse to see, even after all the evidence they've had so far. The hail is the seventh plague, and it's the first one that takes human life. 
but it only takes those who ignore God's warning. For the first time, we see a crack in Pharaoh's demeanor. He calls Moses and Aaron in and says, I have offended just this once. Yahweh is righteous. I and my people are the offenders. Make supplication to Yahweh to stop this hail and thunder, and I will let you go. And Moses says, I'll do that, but I know you and your people still do not fear Yahweh. And sure enough, Moses is right. As soon as the thunder and hail stop, Pharaoh's heart becomes hard again. Chapter 10 opens with God saying to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his court, so I can perform these signs among them. By now you know to check the Hebrew, that so is Lema'an. So this should be translated, Go to Pharaoh, for I, my presence, my being in his face, has hardened his heart and the hearts of his court. Consequently, I will perform these signs among them. I'm sure as far as Pharaoh is concerned, that is an unintended consequence. As a result, the Lord continues, generations to come will hear how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my my signs among them. Are you catching the drift here? This is a power struggle between Yahweh and a Pharaoh who considers himself a god. A pharaoh who will worship beasts, reptiles, and even the sun, anything other than God. God's signs are intended to show the whole world, but especially the Israelites, the Egyptians, and Pharaoh himself, that Yahweh is the God, and that Pharaoh and these other gods are powerless before him. God is introducing himself to his people. The next plague is locusts. Pharaoh is warned. Even his own people try to get him to relent, pointing out that locusts will destroy Egypt's economy. So Pharaoh is forced to call Moses and Aaron back for more negotiations, and they get a little farther this time. Pharaoh asks, who exactly is going into the wilderness to do sacrifices? And Moses and Aaron tell him they're taking everyone and everything, lock, stock, and barrel, from the youngest to the oldest, the women, the children, and all the livestock. And Pharaoh essentially says, in your dreams you are, you may only take the men. I'll be holding the women and children hostage here. And he throws them out of the court. So the Lord looses the locusts on Egypt, and every plant and every green thing in Egypt is utterly destroyed. Pharaoh makes haste to call Moses and Aaron in to get them to stop the plague, admitting his wrongdoing just this once again. You can see that Pharaoh is just going to keep doing this over and over and over. You know that he himself is insulated from the worst of these plagues. It's his people and his country who are suffering. Pharaoh still believes he can manage the situation. Pharaoh's going to get one more chance. This time, there's no warning. It's the only plague where no warning is recorded. This time, there is a darkness so thick it can be felt. It's a suffocating darkness, a darkness that swallows all light. No candles, no torches, no stars, and no moon. The sun god Ra has been vanquished. No one can move in all of Egypt, except, of course, in the homes of the Israelites who still have light. The darkness lasts three days before Pharaoh relents. This time he agrees to let all the people go but refuses to let them take their livestock. And Moses flatly rejects the deal, saying they need to take everything because they don't know what the Lord will want sacrificed until they get there. And this again hardens Pharaoh's heart. I wonder if this meeting took place by light of a candle Moses brought with him. Pharaoh is so angry. He tells Moses that he better get out because the next time he sees Moses' face, he'll kill him. And Moses loses his temper too and says, you got that right, Pharaoh. Furthermore, this time the Lord is going to kill all the firstborn of man and beast in Egypt, and there will be an outcry like there has never been. But not one in Israel will be touched, neither man nor beast. So you will know, finally, that we are a people set apart by Yahweh. All your court will bow down before me and 
beg me to take the people and go, and we will go. And he stomps out. And the Lord says to Moses, you know Pharaoh's not going to listen to you, right? Tell the people to prepare. Tell them to ask everyone they know for gold and silver and clothing. Put it on your sons and daughters. In this way, you will plunder Egypt when you go. And this is exactly what happens. For Moses is greatly esteemed, even by the Egyptians. They can see their emperor has no clothes. In our breakouts today, we'll be working with that new tool, the phrase, I am Yahweh. This phrase always marks an important statement by the Lord to his people. In the table in the study guide, I've given you each passage or a sample of the passages, just one from each kind of category, and a question to answer about that passage. Go through it quickly. Don't overthink this. And then once you, you're done, go back and reflect on what God is trying to teach us about himself. And while you're at it, notice why God does miracles. It's not because we've said the right prayer or made the right petition or even because we need a miracle in the moment. There's a consistent, specific reason God gives over and over for why he does miracles. I've explained to you the instructions, so you don't need to spend time reading the instructions that are in the study guide. Just go straight to the um, uh, table and begin. Well, thank you for the extra time because we made it through everything. Oh, good. We almost did. Good. We almost did. Excellent. So tell me, tell me what you talked about. What did you see in here? In fact, why don't we start at the top and just kind of run through them. What, what did God promise in uh, Genesis 15, 7? The very first place in the Bible, this phrase, I am the, the Lord, appears. We had the land and his covenant. That's right. And then the next mm -hmm. one then the next one was the one we did in class. So that's all filled out for you. So uh, the next time it, it talks about so so the one we did in class was God's introduction of himself to the nation of Israel. This is the very first time they've encountered him as Yahweh. Always before it's just been an individual. So then, then the very next thing God says is he's going to bring the Israelites out of, e out of Egypt. Who's going to know I am the Lord? Just holler it out. Egyptians. Yeah, that's Egyptians. right. And then right after that, who's going to know that I am the Lord? Everyone. That's right. The Israelites and everyone else. That's right. Because he's doing it to both people. He's showing the, the Egyptians and the world, but he's courting his people Israel. He's trying to show them that he is a different kind of God. So he does miracle miracles in Egypt. Why, you know, you've got three boxes so far where he said why he does this miracles. Why does he do the miracles? It shows that he's actually a God. That's that right. Does stuff. Yeah. The other little gods don't do anything, but he actually interacts. That's exactly right. He's, he wants them to know he is God. That's why he's doing this. That's the whole reason he says it over and over and over all the way through the Bible. These, these passages, these first few passages I pulled for you of, are out of Exodus, but after that, they're running through the whole rest of the Bible, the whole rest of the Hebrew Bible. So um, when God kills the firstborn in Egypt, we're going to get to that next week. Why does he say he did that? No. Well, we were talking about how um, by killing the firstborn, a lot of the Egyptian gods wanted the firstborn of livestock or a people or whatever sacrificed to them. And because he took away the firstborn, he took away the people's means of sacrificing to the false gods. Very interesting. But it, and it's very clear here that the action is directed to the gods of Egypt. It's, it's specifically targeted at them in this verse. It says so. So God gives Israel his commandments. Why does he give them the commandments? Why does he say, what is his purpose 
in doing this? Them to be whole. To heal them. That's exactly right. To heal them. And you linked the word whole right back to the original promise to Abram, right? I will make you whole. So the Israelites ran out of food in the desert. I did, there's another verse um, later that talks about how their clothes don't wear out in the desert. Their shoes don't wear out in the desert. Um, what does God do when you need something? He provides. provides. That's right. And why did he provide for them? He loved them. Yes, but it also says he did it so they will know he is God. You see that theme happening? Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now then he goes through and he tells them how to ordain priests and he talks all about how to do worship and why you do worship this. And this was a double one. So this is where he says, I am the Lord at the beginning and I am the Lord at the end. Anytime you see a double or a triple, you know, this is particularly important to God. Why is Pre, the, 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 all of this whole purification kind of stuff that the priests do and why are these worship things so important to God? What does he say he, they are enabling? They have to be clean to be able to dwell with them. And we talked about how, or I did, how this goes back to the very beginning. God created people for fellowship with him. And by cleansing themselves, they made themselves um, able to be in fellowship with God once again. Exactly. He's doing it so he can dwell among us rather than apart from us. That's exactly right. Okay, and that leads right into the very next one where he says, you know, why, what do you need to do to follow his commandments? And this is kind of the commandments in a nutshell are consecrate yourselves to be holy because I am holy. And he says that twice. He doesn't just say, I am the Lord twice, which he does. He says, be holy because I am holy twice. twice. Right. Okay. And then we get to all those commandments. Now, I, I want you to notice that I picked out the commandments that are specifically linked to the I am the Lord phrase. There's a whole zillion lots more commandments that we're going to run into, but these are the ones God picked out and bracketed in or introduced or ended with I am Yahweh. These are the ones he emphasized. So the, the no incest one, which was the first one I ran into, um, when I was doing this search, that's complicated because people who have been sexually abused know this is, this is a very complicated topic and there are very complicated feelings around incest, especially if you're the victim, right? Um, but the, the commandments are written to defend people from incest, okay? So if you have been abused and have been put in a position where you've had to participate in incest, it doesn't matter what that engendered in your heart or in your emotions. That's not what God is talking about. God's here to heal that trauma. All right. These commandments are to people who are contemplating incest. This, these commandments are to protect people from incest. So, and then he thought, don't, don't sacrifice your kids to the idols. The, a really big one is don't let anything else be your God. You're going to see this over and over and over. This is really important to God. And the next really important thing that you see very nearly as much as you see that don't, you know, don't worship anything else is care for the poor, specifically for the immigrant, the foreigner, the traveler, the sojourner among you, the disabled and the ill. I've only given you a couple of examples here. There's, I added this morning in your study guide, I added another table at the bottom that has all of the instances in the Hebrew Bible where I am Yahweh appears so that you can go back and see that, that you can take each of those and they will sort right into these different categories that I've given you here. Don't lie, don't be treacherous, love your neighbor as yourself, 
rest. Re that's what Sabbath is. It's rest. It's really a big deal to God that we rest and that we mm -hmm. take intentional time to put down our busyness and spend time with God. That's what Sabbath is. I don't think he particularly cares when, what day of the week, you know, <laughs> I think God cares that it happens and that it happens regularly. And he cares a very great deal about that. He said, don't be like the other people who worship other gods. Never forget what I've done for you. And he puts in all kinds of things to help them remember um, the things God has done. And he reiterates that the firstborn belonged to him, not to the other gods, not to you, belong to God, which is very, very interesting. Um, and in the New Testament, we'll see that, that Jesus is referred to as the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. You know, we are all included in that firstborn. So then, um, uh, and that just, those few things that I listed there are the core of how we are to treat each other. That's it. And the whole rest of the Bible kind of builds around, around this. Then God explains what, what, are the, what is the benefit of choosing God? What's God's intention with us? In that verse right there. Provision. Satisfaction. I'd even make it stronger. This Ooh. is God wants to give you the desires of your heart. What you really want, not what you think you want, not the, mm -hmm. not the hippopotamus for Christmas. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like hippopotamus. <laughs> He's going, he says, open your mouth. I will fill it. That is beautiful. So as we go through the Bible, we'll see that Israel like never gets it. They don't. They'll have little shining moments, but pretty much they don't get it. And um, he is particularly upset because one of the reasons they don't get it is because of their leadership, because of the corruption of the leadership. What does it say the leaders do in that, in that passage I gave you? They lie. They lie. They lie. And they put themselves up as speaking for God while they're telling those lies. We don't see that in our world today. Not much. Nope. <laughs> it's a big deal to God. And he comes down really hard. And one of the reasons he comes down hard is because they are confusing people about who God is. And amen. all of this stuff. Go ahead, Shirley. No, I just amend you. Yeah, all <laughs> of this stuff is pointed towards God wanting people to know who he is. There is so much confusion today in our world about who mm -hmm. God is. Oh, my gosh. Yes, exactly. And, um, and so that's one of the reasons we, we spend time on this table and on this uh, these, these, this particular phrase where God says who he is. This is important mm -hmm. for understanding all the rest of the story. So Israel, you know, God, as you can imagine, is quite patient and they don't get it and they don't get it and they don't get it. And finally God says, all right, I'm going to step out of the way and the consequences are going to happen. And they do, and they're not good. And what, does it say in this verse that will happen to the Israelites as a result of experiencing these consequences? That they will know that he is God. They will. And what does it say right before that? That they'll know that they've hurt him by turning away from him. They will loathe themselves for what they have done and for all their detestable practices. 
That's what it says. They, what that's saying is their eyes will be opened. They will be forced to see what they have done. Okay, who they are and what they've done and what they've thrown away. And then at the very end, after that has happened and they have seen and they have suffered these consequences and they realize what they threw away with the Lord, they cry out to the Lord. And the last two passages that I gave you um, are just a sampling of the Lord's response. He says, I will accept you as a fragrant incense. And then down at the bottom of that particular passage, passage, what does it say? How does it say he'll deal with them? We said restoration. Mm -hmm. It does. And it also says in that, for, there's two passages there at the bottom of the first one. You will know that I am the Lord. And, and how are they going to know it? It says right after that. That I'll deal with you in my, my way rather than paying you back for what you've done. That's right. You're not going to get what you deserve. Mercy. <laughs> and then and the reason you're not going to get what you deserve is because I am a God of mercy and compassion and love. How dare we? How dare we look at people we think are sinners and condemn them? How dare we? God says in fact I'm, and this is in a different passage. This is in the Joel passage, the second one. I will restore, that word repay is restore. I will restore what you lost. You will have plenty to eat, so much that you will actually be full for a change. And never again, he says this twice. When he says it twice, it means something. Never again will my people be shamed. These are all big deals, you know. Mm -hmm. This, but what I've pulled out here is the picture of God. This is who God says he is. In Exodus, God introduces himself in the passage we covered in class today. These, I am the Lord declarations that run through all the rest of scripture form the backbone, the spine of the rest of the story. The rest of the story is built around this. And when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is going to put feet on it. And that is the end of class today. And as always, I'm around to chit chat. But I did add in your study guide a table that has not just this excerpt of passages, but it has all of the references in the Hebrew Bible for where God says, I am the Lord. And you should be able to take all of them and, and read them and plop them into one of these categories. If not, make up your own category if I got it wrong, you know. But it's going to be a very limited number of things that God is saying about himself. Who God is is very straightforward. It's very simple, and it is very loving. Right. So that, so, so that simple little thing that we teach very young children, God is love. Yes. Out of John. Is the crux of everything. And then we complicate it. Yep. That's right. And what I'm showing you here is the God of the Old Testament. How many myths have you heard about that? Lots, lots. And one of the reasons I went ahead and pulled this in and we did this work was so you wouldn't be afraid moving forward. 
so that you wouldn't be afraid that the wheels are going to fall off the wagon and God's going to turn into a monster at some point in the Old Testament. So many people think of God that way, though. There are so many people who think of God as just justice and vengeance. Mm -hmm. And they don't think about the loving part of God. And God was all about love. Oh. It seems to me that a big part of the problem that we have, though, in looking at the, the way God is described in the Old Testament, really has to do with the things you've been pointing out, Gail, about how certain words are translated or how certain passages are translated from the Hebrew into the English, not understanding the culture, not also understanding the fact that, that the story is being told within a culture where the gods are angry and are seeking vengeance and are calling people to punish their enemies and all of that. And, and in order for the people to understand um, from their cultural context, there's an interpretation put on some of these things that is, is not, you know, when we read it, now we're looking at it and saying, God was terrible. God was angry, God was killing people. How, who would ever worship a God like that? But in those days, that would have been understood as God is aligning with us and showing power by giving us power over our enemies. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I have relatives who would be horrified at not reading the words on the page literally and saying, okay, that's what it is. And we just don't understand God's, God's ways are not our ways. We don't, you know, and, and, and blowing off the fact that this looks like a terrible, vengeful, capricious God. And um, a lot of it just goes to, I think, bad scholarship. <laughs> yes, I think that, that we lose so much um, by not understanding the, where these things are happening within the context of history, you know? like you say, within the context of culture, within the context of the geography, you know, within the context of the political forces at work. Um, and, and we also don't understand it because we cherry pick it because people only study bits, but they don't ever actually put it together in a chain like this because clearly this takes time. This is not a six week Bible class. You know? um, I have a question for you. So much Go ahead. It kind of fits with this, but it's a little, our pastor is doing a two month study or series of sermons on the, on being unoffendable and his um, prompting for doing this series of sermons is all he's seeing on Facebook about people being angry with each other over political things and um, not treating each other with love like we should, which is very noble. And I, you know, think that this is a great um, sermon series and stuff. But the very first sermon this past week, um, he talked about anger and um, how basically the the message that I got from his sermon was that we shouldn't be angry and I don't see that as being exactly what God taught because anger is a human emotion it's not a sin how we handle it can be the sin that's why we have the verse that says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So I replied, or I sent a message to him after the sermon saying, I really liked what you had to say, but, um, you know, in general, I thought it was a really great sermon. I'm looking forward to hearing the next, the rest of the series. But I don't see that, you know, being angry is a sin, that it's, just like love and jealousy and you know these are attributes of God that he gave to us when he made us in his image and you know 
Jesus turned over the money changers table. He was angry. And, um, you know, the response I basically got from him was about Facebook and how we shouldn't be unfriending our friends because they have a different political view. And, you know, and I was also, what, I, what else I said to him was, you know, that I think it's okay to unfriend people on Facebook because, you know, and he talked about forgiveness and stuff like that. And I said, you know, it's possible to forgive people, but you shouldn't just keep letting them abuse you if, if they indeed are, you know, and it all went back to this not being offended. And I'm like, I, I think that there's wrong and I'm missing something. <laughs> I think there's two different kinds of anger and they come from standing in different places with the Lord. And one of the, 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 what we most often associate that word anger with is when somebody's done wrong to us and they have offended us, which is the kind of anger he's talking about. And very often that is based on us standing and drawing a little circle around what's ours. Okay. It might be our opinion. It might be our possessions. It might be our country. It might be our worldview. There's lots of things that because somebody transgressed our boundary, we're angry. And it's a defensive anger that turns into offense, you know? Mm. There is a different kind of anger that is a good kind of anger and results from standing where God is standing, seeing the way God sees, and trying to do what you see God doing, which is how Jesus described his relationship with God. And that kind of anger. I call righteous anger. And that is anger at injustice, at unlove, at destruction of other people. And that kind of anger is a holy anger and is the kind of anger Jesus was demonstrating in the money changer situation. And um, again, as you point out, you have to be careful that when you feel that anger, that righteous anger, mm -hmm. that you go to God with it and say, what are you doing about this, Lord? And realize that that response belongs to the Lord. That you may have a role in it, and because you see it and feel it and understand that righteous anger, the Lord may, in fact, be calling you to do something about the situation. But recognize that what needs to get done, how it needs to get done, and who needs to do it belongs to the Lord. As does any success or failure. Your job is not the end result. The end never justifies the means for God's people. Right. We, our part is to step out at that next step that the Lord shows us we need to take. I was this morning feeling this after reading a, an article by a woman who used to be in the Border Patrol an officer for many years in the border patrol and the abuse and the violence and the disrespect for human beings that she described made that anger rise up in me. I'm an old lady in isolation with a husband who is ill. I, I can't go down there and do stuff about this, but I can pray. I can pray for the people who are doing something about it. I can pray that the Lord raise up the people that they listen, that the hearts change. Does that help at all in sorting it out, Shirley? Yeah. And I'm re I, I pulled up his email that he, sent back to me in response. And one of the things he said is some of what we think about anger scripturally seems to be a tension between Jesus's teachings and Paul's. 
Well, there's certainly a tension between Jesus' teaching and Paul's. <laughs> yeah, so basically, you know, he's saying that uh, Jesus says we'll see on trial if we're angry in Matthew 5 and tells us to get rid of anger completely in Ephesians 4. So uh, we'll see. He said in a few weeks he's preaching on the temple incident where Jesus cleared out the money changers. So we'll see where it goes. I, I am looking forward to listening to them, but to the sermons. But um, I have learned through the few weeks, months that we've had so far in this Bible study, not to just take it all at face value and to really look into it a little deeper. And um, I have an idea that my pastor and I are going to be having more discussions over the next few weeks. <laughs> it ought to be a very interesting series. So, yeah, it's, we just called it unoffendable. Interesting. And I do think that we should be unoffendable to, as far as, you know, if you're making fun of me, if you're, if you're cutting me down, if you're saying, you know, I'm fat or you're saying I'm ugly or if you're saying I'm stupid or, if, you know, you're, I'm not going to let that offend me because that's your opinion and you're welcome to have your opinion. But to, um, to, to say to me something about my God and to blaspheme my God or to claim God's power when you're totally living in opposition to what God has said. I take offense to that, not personally, but because of what that, the light that that sheds on my God. That's not who my God is. That's true. Um, but what I find is um, that I tend to find the Lord focusing me in those situations at where the damage is being done. All right. So if the damage is directed at me, I need, and it's bothering me, I need to go back and figure out why I am deriving my value and identity from what someone else thinks. Oh, that's good. That's a problem. <laughs> okay. My value and identity are come from God. And, and if I'm feeling offended, I need to like look at that first. Secondly, I look around me and if the words that are being spoken are hurting someone else, if this person is a false leader and is speaking for God and is speaking untruth, then I'm going to stand up and say something. You know, I am. I, I, I'm not going to stand by and be complicit in that. But it is not my job to remove that person to change that person, unless God gives me those words in that place. You know, it's, you have to, God is part of this. He doesn't, I am like clearly way far on the pendulum away from God as a clockmaker and just set us in motion, you know, and is sitting back and watching. That's not how I see. That's not what I read here in the lesson today. That's not what God says he is. God says, I want to dwell among you. I want to be part of this. I want to be every day. You get hungry, I'll feed you. You know, how many times a day do you get hungry? I'm always hungry. <laughs> you know, I'm also seeing, and, and it, during today's study, it, it just kind of hit me. Um, what's going on in our nation? We are seeing the nat natural consequences of getting our eyes off of God. I'm sorry, you broke up there. Of what? getting our focus off of God. We took our eyes off of God and we put it on ourselves. And as a nation, we've been selfish and we are starting to see the natural consequences like what we read about today of our deeds. I think that it um, actually has roots way farther back. Um, I think, and we, this class, we probably won't go beyond the Bible unless you ha happen to want to when we're done um, and into what happened afterwards. But I think that um, Christianity, I'm just limiting my, my comments to Christianity, began to go off the rails when 
it became the national religion of the empire. And once we allowed ourselves to become a tool of power, to become associated with power, to be established by power, to be funded by power, um, I think things went south in a hurry. And Mm -hmm. they have continued to be that way. There have been, you know, attempts to different sects and denominations have, have tried to pull us back out of that, the monastic, you know, tradition, the poverty traditions um, have tried to pull us away from that, but we've never been able to separate ourselves from power and affluence ever since. And I think that that at its root is what we are seeing the fruit of in America today. I think that's what's wrong with Christianity today. Also, to me, it seems like our country has turned into, turned even God into an idol. Instead of recognizing who he is, he's just an idol to sit on the shelf and once a week or whenever, take it out and say, okay, we need your help now. Instead of seeking that help all the time. Yeah, you can hear that language when people say, God is on my side, God is on our side, and God is going, God needs to do this. You know, it's, 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 they, when you see someone wielding God as a weapon, you miss the boat somewhere. Thank you, Gail. I need to go. My husband's waiting to take me to lunch. So. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I need I to go. I to down at one and oops. But thank I need, you so much. I need to go too. I love you all. We'll see you next week. Thank Bye, you. y'all. Love you. Bye. 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 Good to have you back, Julie. Thank you.